Well, hey there, again, or for the first time, to the History Cash podcast. I've got another piece of history for you today, one in a series that highlights good people doing good things in times of crisis. The intention of these stories is to give you something hopeful and inspirational to listen to between seeing the endless stream of news feeds telling you that we're heading in a steadily dropping downward spiral towards annihilation in a toilet paperless world. History has been full of times and moments like this, and we're talking about one of these moments today. This one is kind of a downer in parts, just a heads up. But in the end, the life of this woman, Meep Geese, made an imprint on the world that will last as long as recorded history does. A lot of the names and places I'll be discussing are German or Dutch in origin, so I apologize in advance for my horrendous attempts at pronunciation. I promise you I'm trying my best, and I researched how to pronounce everything, but even so, it might sound like my American accent is murdering some of these words, and for that, my friends, I am sorry. I meant for this to be a short history bite, but it ended up being a bit longer. The more I researched Meep, the more I realized there were parts of her story that I just couldn't leave out. What she did was too impactful not to tell it in as much detail as possible. She's probably even had an impact on you, you just might not recognize her name. But you'll see what I mean. For this episode, we're going back to Europe, back to the early 19th century, and we're going to meet a woman that did something extraordinary. Not because she had to, what she did actually endangered her life and the lives of everyone she loved. What she did, she did because it was the right thing to do at a time when the whole world was being ripped apart. So let's go back in time and find the unstoppable, the unrelentingly kind, Meep Geese. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. Meep Geese wasn't born Meep Geese. The name given to her when she was born on February 15, 1909, was Hermine Santruschitz. She was born in Vienna, Austria, near the easternmost reaches of the Alps. Her parents had a hard time making ends meet, and when World War I broke out when Hermine was only five years old, things became even harder. There wasn't much food to go around, and when her sister was born, there was even less. By ten years old, Hermine was malnourished. She was small, too small for her age, and wasn't growing the way she should have been. Her legs were stick-thin, with her kneecaps looking as if they were bulging out from them. Her teeth were soft, and by the age of ten, her health was deteriorating so quickly that if something wasn't done to get her the right food, the right amount of food, and the health care she needed, her parents were told that Hermine was going to die. But her parents had no real options, they just couldn't afford what Hermine needed. But they'd heard of a Dutch workers' association that had set up a program for the children of the Austrian working class. The program allowed children to travel to the Netherlands for several months in order to regain their strength, their health, and receive the food and care they needed. 
In a stroke of luck that saved her life, Hermine was chosen to be a part of the program. So, on a wintry day in December of 1920, the 11-year-old Hermine was loaded onto a train full of other Viennese children. The train was set to depart Vienna for Leiden, a town Hermine had never heard of in a country where they spoke a language she didn't understand. She boarded the train, her long, dark blonde hair held back with a cotton cloth tied into a bow. They placed a card tied to a string around her neck. On it were the names of strangers, people she didn't know. The car of the train was filled with children just like her, all with cards on strings and the names of strangers dangling from their necks. Upon arrival in Leiden, the children were awakened. Many had fallen asleep on the long journey, and they were led out into a large hall full of people, all scrambling to read the names on the cards. The man whose name was around her neck was Lorenz Neuenberg, a short man but strong, the foreman of a coal company in Leiden. He would have been intimidating if it hadn't been for his kind eyes. Something about him was trustworthy, and Hermine went with him, unafraid, to a small house just outside of town where he lived with his wife, his four sons, and a daughter. It was a warm house, and despite the language barrier, Hermine was taken with the family immediately. She spoke German, the family spoke Dutch, but she learned quickly, and her health began to improve. She ate and drank like she never had before. Even at the end of her life, she remembered the good Dutch milk, the butter, the cheese, how toasty the temperature of all the rooms in the house were, the marmalade, and the chocolate. She especially remembered the chocolate. It was here that she started taking the name Meep. It was a nickname the family gave to her, and she put it on like a new pair of shoes, breaking it in first as her mean Meep, then just Meep. She went to school in Leiden. She learned Dutch and quickly became the best student in her class. It's amazing what a kid can do when their first concern isn't having to worry about surviving. She learned to make her own sandwiches. She learned how to ride a bike and was introduced to classical music, which she very much enjoyed. Everyone in the family seemed to have an interest in politics and they would read the newspaper each day. She picked up this habit, too, and loved discussing what she read. This would instill in Meep a passion for politics and learning that would greatly influence the rest of her life. The program was only supposed to last for three months, but Meep was allowed an extra three on account of how poor her health was when she had arrived. She was getting stronger, healthier, but it was taking time. And the family loved having Meep. She fit in like another daughter. And she loved them too, so much that she didn't want to return to Vienna. So she stayed, and the 11-year-old Meep grew into the 16-year-old Meep. In 1925, Mr. and Mrs. Neuenberg traveled with her back to Vienna to visit her parents and her sister. Meep was happy to see them when she arrived, but she was also anxious. She didn't want to stay in Vienna, and she didn't want to hurt her parents by telling them so. But her mother understood how integrated into Dutch culture her daughter had become, and her parents both knew that staying in Vienna wasn't what their daughter wanted. So they consented to letting her return with the Neuenbergs back to the Netherlands. She was elated to return to what had become home. She grew. She became interested in philosophy. She read voraciously, tried her hand at writing even. 
she was a bit of an introvert, speculative, and private. She graduated from high school and by 18 had a job as an office assistant. She worked diligently there for six years, read her books, enjoyed her chocolate. But she lost her job in 1933. She wasn't fired, but laid off for financial reasons. She was 24 now and healthy, a far cry from the bony-legged 11-year-old that had boarded a train full of starving children years earlier. Meep needed a new job, but the job market was poor and finding employment was difficult. But Meep got a lucky break. An upstairs neighbor of hers told her of a temp job that had recently opened up. It was at the Nederlandse Opecta Company. They specialized in the trade of Opecta, which is a gelling agent made with a fruit powder base. It was an ingredient meant to make the production of household jams easier and cheaper. Meep was eager to get back to work, even if it was to be temporary, so her neighbor arranged an interview for her. On Monday morning, Meep donned a dress that she had made herself, topped it with her nicest blouse, put on her high heels to compensate for her short stature, and tied her hair into a loose knot that dangled down near her neck, just like the women she had seen in her favorite American films. She grabbed her bike and rode all the way to the address her neighbor had given her. She was used to getting around on her bike, and the dress she had ironed with care that morning kept its clean shape when she arrived. She walked inside and met Otto, the company's managing director in charge of manufacturing and distribution. Meep was nervous, and she could feel her cheeks burning, turning into a blushing red. But Otto was polite and cordial, and she felt more at ease after he apologized for his broken Dutch and began speaking German, her own native tongue. He led her to the kitchen, which seemed a bit odd. Once there, Otto handed Meep a piece of paper. It was a recipe for jam. Then he said abruptly, here's the recipe, now make jam. Then he left. Meep stood there alone in the kitchen, perplexed, but she did as she was told. And it turns out she was great at making jam. It had the perfect consistency and flavor, and it got her the job. She even appeared in a commercial for Opecta, making it look easy to make jam. A few weeks in, she was moved to the complaint and information desk. Mostly this meant she was yelled at by people who had not followed the recipe and were still upset that their jam hadn't turned out right. If you've ever worked in any kind of customer service before, I'm sure you can relate. Meep would calm them down, keep her patience, and help them figure out what had gone wrong. She was good at this, and most callers left the line a little less indignant. Meep liked the job, and her boss, Otto, became a friend over the next few months. He was living in a hotel as he awaited the arrival of his wife and children from Germany. Otto was Jewish and was relocating his family on account of Hitler's anti-Semitic policies. He and Meep talked politics often and generally both found themselves on the same side of things. Meep had been hired to temporarily replace a woman named Miss Heel, but she was such a great fit for the office that even when Miss Heel returned, she was allowed to stay on. But Meep and Miss Heel didn't get along. Miss Heel had joined the NSB, a fascist political association that sided with the Nazis. She no doubt didn't like working for a Jewish boss and didn't like Meep. Eventually, she just called in sick and never came back. Otto quipped it was, quote, an easy way to lose a Nazi. And Nazi sentiment was growing. The city was soon full of Jewish refugees making their way from Germany 
and the increasingly hostile politics of Adolf Hitler. While the water of fascism was turning from a simmer to a boil in Germany, back in the Netherlands, Otto and Miep and the Opetka company carried on. But business was rough, people tended only to make jam during the summer because that's when fresh fruit was abundant. So to boost business in the winter, Otto was looking to expand. Otto had an old business friend, a man named Hermann van Pels, who sold spices and herbs, mainly used for meats. Hermann had also fled Germany with his wife and child, seeking refuge and a safe space to carry on. The two partnered up, and Opecta began selling spices and herbs to supplement their sales. It was increasingly successful, and the company had to move to a larger space in the city. During all of this, Meep was busy. On top of her work, she had a very lively social life. The quiet young introvert was branching out, spreading her wings as a bit of a social butterfly. She started attending dance lessons on Friday and Saturday nights. This was a common pastime for many of her peers at the time. Meep loved dancing, and she was good at it. She never had to sit for too long before someone would hold out their hands to her and sweep her out onto the dance floor. Though there were a number of men in Meep's social circles, there was only one that caught her eye. He was tall, very tall. He was always well-dressed, and he was attractive. His hair was thick and always seemed to glisten, and she loved his eyes, warm and full of life. His name was Yan Gies. The two had met some time earlier when Meep was working her last job before she was laid off. She had been a typist and he an accountant, and the two had stayed in touch. He became a social worker for the Amsterdam Social Service, and the two of them saw each other often as they lived in the same neighborhood. Their friendship eventually blossomed into a romance. They both loved Mozart, flea markets, the cinema, and on sunny days they would go on bicycle rides. They would take one bike, Yan would pedal, and Meep would sit sideways on the seat behind him, her feet raised above the ground, dress flapping in the wind as they wound down the streets, her arms gently wrapped around his waist. Her boss Otto liked Yan and thought he was a good fit for Meep. The two even had the same ironic sense of humor. He invited the two over for dinner. His family had finally arrived from Germany, and the couple would regularly join them for dinners. They would talk about the increasingly worrisome state of things and how Hitler's politics were inching ever closer to their doors. That was until Otto's two children came to the table. When they were within earshot, the adults would only discuss cheerful things. Jan could also speak German, something that made Otto's family feel more at ease. Otto's wife Edith was still learning Dutch, and having friends who she could be herself around, conversing with ease, was something she came to treasure. The world was catching on fire, but they didn't want the children to know that. They had enough on their minds, having moved to a new place, a new country, no less. Meep and Yan became close friends with Otto and his family, and a strong friendship blossomed over the many dinners and conversations, the Saturday afternoons with cake and coffees shared between them. Otto and Edith introduced the young couple to some of their other Jewish friends, all there for the same reasons as they were, and their circle of friends grew. Meep and Yan eventually wanted to get married, but they both lacked the money to pay for a wedding or for a place of their own, so they just continued dating as they tried to save as much money as they could. But soon, Meep turned 30, and Yan 34, and they decided they couldn't wait to at least live together any longer, 
and began looking for a place. But finding a space was hard. Hitler had invaded Poland by now. The city was crammed with people who had fled Hitler's regime, and it was swelling with new refugees every day. They eventually found a small place with the help of Otto. They lied, telling the landlord they were already married, and she bought the story. But there was another problem they had to contend with. Although Meep had lived in the Netherlands since 1920, she had never relinquished her Austrian nationality. In 1938, Austria had been annexed by Nazi Germany, and Meep tried to obtain Dutch citizenship, even sending a letter to Queen Wilhelmina, though this didn't bear any fruit. Although the Germans were slicing their way through Europe, life in the city hadn't changed that much for Meep and Jan, until one day when Meep was unexpectedly summoned to the German consulate because she had refused to join a Nazi girls' association. She was not shy about confirming this to the German officer at the consulate. He then took her passport and drew a big black X next to the expiry date, briskly handed it back to her and told her that her passport was now invalid, and she had three months to return to Vienna. This was devastating for Meep, and it was the first time she really began to understand just how much Europe was changing. Until now, life had remained somewhat familiar, but this was an ill omen, signaling that the grip of Nazi Germany was squeezing tightly around the Netherlands. Many of her friends were Jewish, and she began to realize just how dangerous the world was becoming for those she loved. More and more anti-Jewish measures were being enforced in the city, each one more oppressive than the last. There was a loophole that she could take advantage of. If she were to marry a Dutchman, she could potentially stay in the Netherlands. The problem here was she would have to obtain her original birth certificate from Vienna. In a pre-internet world, this was a nightmare of a thing. Today, you can get an official copy of your birth certificate in a few weeks, even if you live far from where you were born. In Meep's time, it would have taken about a year, and that's without a war raging on in the background. But Meep had an uncle back in Vienna who was both tenacious and lucky. He found a civil servant who was empathetic to Meep's circumstances, because you can always find kind people, even in the darkest of times and places. This kind civil servant pulled some strings, and she gave Meep's uncle the birth certificate. Lucky isn't even a word good enough to describe how, well, lucky Meep was that this woman she would never meet had just done her a favor. This one act was going to trickle out, and this civil servant would never know that she had just made possible an important piece of history that still affects millions of us today. Meep and Yan made an appointment at City Hall. The date was set, and they would finally be married on July 16, 1941. They would be married at the same time as two other couples, because that was the most cost-effective path. It wasn't how either of them had imagined their wedding, but that didn't matter. They were in love, and they were both finally going to be married. Meep was anxious that the municipal official would refuse to marry them because of the black X on her passport. But Meep, once again, got lucky and found herself before an official who empathized with her situation. It was like lightning striking twice in the same place. And that summer, Meep married Jan and became an official Dutch national. 
For the wedding, Otto closed the entire office for the day so he and all of Meep's friends who worked at Opecta could attend the ceremony. And after the ceremony, Otto threw a party, transforming the office into a feasting hall with liverwurst, sliced beef, salami, and cheese. When Meep told Otto it was too much, especially in hard times like these, he just smiled. He was happy to have something to celebrate, something to take everyone's minds off of what they all knew was coming. I wanted to take a second to introduce you guys to another history podcast that I'm 100% sure you'll love. It's called the Australian Histories Podcast, and if you like history, you've just gotta check it out. It's got everything from Antarctic exploration to an emu war and dingo fences. Plus, Jenny has a way better accent than I do, which you're going to get to hear right now. Hello, History Cash fans. I'm Jenny from the Australian Histories Podcast, where we take a fresh look at some of the brilliant stories from Australia's past. If you have an interest in Australian history, you can dip in and out of the topic episodes that interest you and learn a little about the important and iconic incidents, people and places of Australia. Topics range from ironclad bushrangers, British convicts and intrepid explorers, to the beloved platypus or the mighty emu. Ponder the construction of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, the massive dingo and rabbit-proof fences, or consider the Eureka Rebellion. If you can cope with my Aussie accent, I'm sure you'll find something that'll pique your interest. Have a look at the episodes available at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. That's history spelt with I-E-S. Thanks, Kristen. Cheers, everyone. A year before Meep and Jan were married, Germany invaded the Netherlands. Before the invasion, the Netherlands had a policy of neutrality. They had stayed neutral during World War I, and the Great War had largely passed them by. But the strategy of neutrality would not protect them from this war. Germany wanted the Netherlands. Capturing the Netherlands meant they could bypass the French defense line at the eastern border, and it would also prevent England from setting up a base of operations there on the European mainland. On the morning of May 10, 1940, the German Air Force, known as the Luftwaffe, dropped paratroopers onto the Netherlands, and the country, despite its neutral policy, found itself at war. To justify his attack, Hitler lied. No surprise there. He said England and France were planning to attack Germany via the Netherlands and Belgium, so many of the German paratroopers were surprised to find no English soldiers when they landed in the Netherlands. It was an unprovoked attack by Nazi Germany. The Dutch military fought back and even gained a few small victories, but the geography of the Netherlands, which is mostly flat and doesn't provide any good natural defenses, made it difficult for the army to resist the Germans. The Netherlands, because of its neutral stance, didn't have a cooperative defense strategy with the other countries already allied against the Nazis, so they were on their own. The reigning monarch at the time was Queen Wilhelmina, and to keep her from becoming a German hostage, her cabinet insisted she flee the country. 
She eventually agreed, though reluctantly, and arrived in England under protection of the British royal family. She continued to take charge of the Dutch government in exile. The retreat of their queen was initially a huge blow to the Dutch people who had until then been reading newspapers filled with the news of Dutch victories. But the queen soon became a symbol of resistance. She remained steadfast in her criticism of Hitler and broadcast messages to the Dutch back home over Radio Oranje. These late-night broadcasts were important to the many Dutch people who had to hide and listen to them illegally. The one you're hearing now is from 1940. Queen Wilhelmina is telling her people to trust in inevitable victory. Many people, especially those who had fled Hitler's regime before, tried to leave the Netherlands via ships to England, but not all of them succeeded. As Germany invaded city after city and took piece after piece of the country, the Netherlands was forced to surrender only five days after the Nazi invasion. This day marked the start of a five-year German occupation of the Netherlands. After the Nazis conquered the Netherlands, other countries began to fall. They took Belgium, Luxembourg, then parts of France, and by the end of 1940, almost all of Western Europe was controlled by Germany. Looking back from where we are 80 years later, it's easy to forget just how close Germany came to winning World War II. But resistance was everywhere, and many of the Dutch people joined in that resistance at great risk to themselves and their families. Increasingly harsh economic and political regulations were implemented by the Nazis. Jews were being driven into social isolation, stripped of their possessions and businesses, and more and more Dutch Jews were being removed from their homeland and sent to concentration camps. By 1942, all Jews were required to identify themselves with the Yellow Star of David on their clothes. Otto stopped having Meep and Jan over for dinner or Saturday coffee. It was too risky. He also stepped down from his position at his company, as he believed his presence there was endangering everyone. He asked Jan to take over as commissioner, and then he decided it was time to take his family and go into hiding. The Van Pels, another family close to Meep and Jan, decided to join them in hiding. Eventually, an eighth person, Fritz Pfeffer, a dentist, would join them too. But Otto and Edith, their children and the Van Pels, could not hide without the support of someone on the outside who would be willing to care for them, bring them food and news, and risk everything to keep them safe. Otto asked Meep if she would protect them, hide them, care for them. Without hesitation, she said yes. She wrote later about this moment, saying, quote, There is a look between two people, once or twice in a lifetime, that cannot be described by words. This look passed between us. Unquote. Meep and Yan took as many shoes and items of clothing that they could from the family's apartment so they could sneak them gradually to the families in hiding, their furniture was given to various friends who agreed to keep it safe. The families would be hiding in close quarters. 
a space tucked away in the rear of Otto's office building, a little less than 800 square feet, and concealed behind a hidden bookcase filled with what looked like old office files. This was the secret entrance through which Meep would bring them groceries, books, and news of the outside world. Every day, she would sneak inside, check on what had soon become eight different occupants, and then leave. She carried on with her work in the office, which was still running, being secretly headed by Otto, tucked away behind the walls. The stockroom assistants working in the office had no idea anyone was hiding behind the walls, and those in hiding had to remain extremely quiet during the day. Even a sneeze could have alerted someone to their presence. There were several employees keeping Otto and the others safe. There was Meep and Jan, Bep Voschkeil and her father Johan, Victor Kugler, and Johannes Kleiman. Without them, those in hiding would have stood no chance. Meep and her colleagues were not the only Dutch citizens hiding people or resisting the Germans. Individuals all over the Netherlands were organized in resistance. Some joined the puppet German government, taking positions on the inside and feigning loyalty while remaining loyal to the government in exile. Some joined the Nazi-organized Dutch National Police and aided resistors. Some Dutch resistors were able to gather intelligence information, feeding it to Allied forces. Some helped smuggle their Jewish neighbors and friends to England or Switzerland, something that became increasingly difficult as the Nazis fortified the coasts in anticipation of an Allied attack. Resistors would meet in secret, sometimes wearing masks to protect their identities from one another, in case anyone were to be caught and forced into a confession. Resisting was dangerous. Those who were caught were shot or sent to concentration camps. Despite these risks, the Dutch resistance to the Nazis continued. Miep and Jan began hiding a Dutch student in their own home on top of caring for the eight people hiding behind the walls of the office. The student had refused to sign the German Oath of Allegiance, and to avoid being deported to Germany, he also had to rely on Miep and Jan. This meant Meep and Yan were buying groceries for, including themselves, a total of 11 people. It was hard, and food became scarcer, with less and less becoming available as the war dragged on. She and Yan often resorted to eating scraps. Meep and the others carried on, and they were successful at keeping everyone fed and safe for two years. On Friday, August 4th, 1944, around 11 a.m., Meep, Bep, and Johannes were working at their desks. Meep looked up when she heard the office door open. There was a man standing in the doorway, pointing a gun at them. It isn't known if someone they knew had betrayed them or if a stranger had. Maybe someone had caught a glimpse of someone behind a curtain or an office assistant happened to hear a cough or a sneeze in the walls. We still don't know who it was, we may never know. But someone said something that gave them all up. The helpers were arrested, the eight people in hiding were captured and sent to concentration camps, where all but one of them, Meep's boss Otto, would die. 
Their helpers would all miraculously survive. Meep was released on the promise she wouldn't flee, because the SS officer who arrested her was an Austrian from Vienna, just like Meep. Another lucky break for Meep. It was Meep who kept the business running. And it was Meep who kept the diaries of Otto's youngest daughter, Anne, tucked away inside the drawer of her desk. She remembered the first time she had met Anne. Her mother had brought her into the office after they had arrived from Germany. She was a shy but inquisitive child, bundled up in a fuzzy white fur jacket. Meep had brewed some coffee for the adults and poured a glass of milk for Anne. She wrote about this later. Quote, Anne and I walked toward my desk. She looked with fascination at my shiny black typewriter. I held her little fingers to the keys and pressed. Her eyes flashed when the keys jumped up and printed black letters onto the invoice rolled into the machine. Then I directed her attention to the window, just the kind of lively scene I thought every child would like. I was right. The view caught her interest. The streetcars, the bicycles, the passerby. Watching Anne, I thought, now here's the kind of child I'd like someday. Quiet, obedient, curious about everything. Unquote. Meep knew what the diaries were, but she couldn't bring herself to read them. She had no idea what had happened to Otto Frank, his two daughters, the Van Pels, or Fritz. In 1945, the last of the concentration camps had finally been liberated, and many of the survivors made their way back to Amsterdam. Meep's husband Jan ran an aid center to assist those returning and asked everyone he could if they had heard of the Frank family or their fate, but no one knew anything. On June 3, 1945, Meep's doorbell rang. When she answered the door, she saw Otto Frank standing on her doorstep. He was thin and carrying a bundle of what was left of his belongings. She couldn't bring herself to ask what had happened to his family. She was afraid to know. Otto told her he knew his wife Edith was dead. She had died of starvation at Auschwitz but he still held out hope for his two daughters, Margot and Anne, who had both been sent to Bergen-Belsen, a concentration camp in northern Germany. Otto asked if he could stay with Meep and Jan, and she, of course, said yes. It was at the office where he received the letter telling him he would never see either of his daughters again. They had both died of typhus, first Margot, then Anne. It was then that Meep opened her desk drawer, and gave him the diaries Anne had written, saying, quote, This is the legacy of your daughter Anne. At that time, the only one who had ever seen the contents of the diaries had been their author, Anne Frank. Otto was the first to read them. He translated excerpts into German for his mother living in Sweden. He would ask Meep to listen when he wanted to read portions out loud, but she always refused. She could not bring herself to hear what Anne had written. Not yet. It was just too much to process. When Otto began to get his furniture back from his friends, he gave all of it to Meep and Yan, who he continued to live with. 
Otto would have a group of his Jewish friends over for coffee periodically, and it was with one of these friends he finally shared the diaries of Anne. The man was so taken with her words and her story that he convinced a reluctant Otto to lend it to a historian who wrote a piece for it in the daily newspaper. Otto was reluctant because he didn't want to betray Anne's privacy. The idea of his daughter's thoughts and musings being shared with the whole world seemed like a violation of her trust. But the historic significance of her words was huge, and it ultimately outweighed his reluctance. In 1947, her diaries were published as one work for the first time. Meep could still not bring herself to read what Anne had written, even at Otto's insistence. It wasn't until the third edition of the diary was published that she finally relented. She took the diary to her room, closed the door, and read the entire diary without stopping. She said about this, quote, From the first word, I heard Anne's voice come back to speak to me from where she had gone. I lost track of time. Anne's voice tumbled out of the book, so full of life, moods, curiosity, feelings. She was no longer gone and destroyed. She was alive again in my mind. Unquote. Otto lived with Meep and Jan for seven years until he emigrated to Switzerland to be closer to his mother. He died in 1980. Meep and Yan eventually had a son in 1949. Yan Yi's died January 26, 1993, from diabetes at age 87. Meep spoke out against intolerance, lecturing well into her 80s. She passed away January 11, 2010, after suffering injuries from a fall. She died a month before her 101st birthday. Today, the diary of Anne Frank has been translated into 67 different languages and has sold more than 30 million copies. This is an incredibly sad and tragic story, so why am I showcasing it in a series that's supposed to be inspirational? Well, because it is inspirational. Meep could not save everyone she had tried to save, but she gave them all the gift of time a time during which a young, intelligent teenage girl would write one of the most widely read books of all time. Meep, though she didn't know it, had preserved history, one that has touched the hearts of tens of millions of us. Meep was someone who did something good when the world around her was on fire. And so did Anne. Anne, who wrote, In spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. Anne, who wrote, I don't think of all the misery, but of all the beauty that still remains. Anne, who wrote, Human greatness does not lie in wealth or power, but in character and goodness. Anne, who wrote, In the long run, the sharpest weapon of all is a kind and gentle spirit. And you know, the older I get, the more I realize she was right about that. That brings this episode on the life and reach of Meep Geese to an end. I know it was heavy, but I hope it inspired in the way I intended it to. I'll be back in two weeks with another story from history about the goodness that shines through in times of crisis. 
If you know of a story that's particularly relevant to what we're all going through right now, send it my way. I just may showcase it sometime in this next month. You can get a hold of me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing on iTunes or wherever you listen. A podcast's visibility is directly tied to how many subscribers it has. If you're able to show your support financially, you can do that for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. Patrons get special perks that no one else does, including free stickers and access to the members-only feed. I'm an independent podcaster, so anything you do, even just telling a friend about the podcast, is humongously appreciated. And thank you to everybody who has written reviews and subscribed. It's made such a huge difference. It really makes me feel like all of this work I'm putting into this is really worth it. So thank you, and thank you for listening today. Stay safe, and stay healthy, friends. And if you get the chance to show some extra kindness in these next few weeks, do it. Like Meep's many acts of kindness, it might ripple out much further than you could ever think possible. Until we meet again, my dear wandering stars of podcast land, go make some history.